Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by BetDSI. Hey, you're looking for a place to bet on NFL and NCAA football? BetDSI is the industry leader in football betting and the perfect sports book for both novice and professional bettors alike. New members get a 100% bonus match when you use the promo code SEATS100. Yeah, that's SEATS100 at BetDSI.com. That's more than double your money to help start winning today. Once again, BetDSI.com, promo code SEATS100, and get your limited time 100% bonus offer when you deposit today. Now, here's our show. There is probably no single area holding so much of charm and beauty and the good things of life as Southern California. From the beautifully designed Spanish-type station at Los Angeles, in the heart of the City of the Angels, the thrill of Southern California is in the air. In the years since the turn of the century, Los Angeles has grown from a sleepy pueblo to a vast, seething metropolitan city. Fine buildings, huge stores, busy citizens. A city which has grown faster than any other in America in the past decade which sees a constant day-to-day influx of people from every part of the world. Of course, no look at Southern California would be complete without a round of Hollywood. This is Hollywood Boulevard and the world-renowned Grauman's Chinese Theater. In the forecourt of this celebrated cinema house are the footprints of the outstanding stars of the screen. Here, the idols of millions have left mementos of their undying fame. Radio and television, too, are focal points of Hollywood life. And the great broadcasting systems are important additions to the entertainment business, which contributes to the lifeblood of this community. At Sunset and Vine stands the Western headquarters of the National Broadcasting Company, source of many favorite programs. Just down Sunset Boulevard is the Columbia Broadcasting System, outlet for thousands of hours of radio pleasure and television spectacles. This great network, along with NBC, ABC, and Mutual, draws thousands of enthusiastic radio and TV fans who come to see the stars and programs. Baseball occupies a prominent spot in the entertainment sports picture of Southern California. Both Hollywood and Los Angeles have teams that draw an ample quota of loyal rooters. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right there, friends. How you doing? My name is Tim Hanlon, and it's a Good Seats Still Available. How is it going? We appreciate your finding us and uh, downloading us, putting us in your earbuds. Uh, And of course, Good Seats Still Available is the curious little podcast. That is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. We uh, appreciate it uh, to no end. Uh, you're uh, going out of your way to find us this week and uh, and listen in as we get into some fun times back in the 1950s when Los Angeles was this uh, just, you know, uh, on the rise uh, metropolitan area where everything was uh, possible and uh, ribbons of highways and all kinds of great culture and weather and all that kind of stuff. None of the ills that uh, sort of comprise uh, a lot of the uh, <laughs> the current Southern California experience with so much population and all that kind of stuff. But back in the 50s, it was a kinder, gentler time. And baseball, very prominent uh, 
in this metropolis, uh, this budding metropolis known as Los Angeles uh, and environs. And uh, we talked about one of those baseball teams in the Pacific Coast League, that being essentially pretty damn close to major league quality on a on a given any given day or year. Uh, and Lord knows the Pacific Coast League uh, tried on a couple of different occasions to kind of elevate themselves, either by willing themselves or at least being trying to be confused with the two major leagues. Um, and it's debatable, but uh, as to whether the the uh, the talent and the, and the play was at that caliber. But I think you'd find more than a few people and not just nostalgists either who would have said that uh, the caliber of play was pretty high and uh, and arguably equal to that, at least of the major leagues and Los Angeles uh, had two of those Pacific Coast League teams uh, for a large part of the Pacific Coast League's uh, early and, uh, you know, actually just curtailed recently existence, just ended really last year with the realignment of minor leagues and Major League Baseball. Uh, we talked about the first one uh, back in our episode number 208 with our pal Dan Taylor, those being the Hollywood Stars. Yeah, Gilmore Field, and uh, I guess we're sort of now near where CBS Television City and the Farmer's Market area is and stuff. That's sort of where Gilmore uh, Field was located. And and to its name, had a bevy of Hollywood stars as uh, as part of their, uh, their ownership. But uh, the other team we're going to get into today with our guest this week, Galen White, we're going to talk about the Los Angeles Angels of the Pacific Coast League. Yeah, the LA Angels uh, was a team that uh, played in the Pacific Coast League for uh, a whole bunch of its existence, I think, from, well, the team itself existed as early as 1892. Uh, but when the uh, Pacific Coast League uh, began in earnest uh, in 1903, there were the Los Angeles Angels, and they lasted for, geez, a good uh, almost 50, well, 50 some odd years. And uh, it's a fascinating tale. Uh, and again, Los Angeles, in some respects, you know, the populace didn't really sort of know any better, right? This was the now uh, third largest metropolitan area in the 1950s as our, as we uh, focus our lens on the LA Angels history. We're, our discussion is actually going to be more focused on uh, a period of time uh, in the 50s with the Angels, and uh, in particular highlighted by the 1956 uh, last, for them, uh, championship of the Angels in that league. And and what a time it was. The book is called The Bilko Athletic Club, the story of the 1956 Los Angeles Angels. And the sort of key person in that story by his name is a guy named Steve Bilko. Now, Bilko, that sounds like an interesting name. Where have I heard that one before? Oh, maybe that sounds like Sergeant Bilko from the old Phil Silvers show. Uh, really dating myself. But yes, uh, make no mistake, there is no mistake. The name Bilko for that show was indeed, uh, if you will, stolen or or borrowed heavily, shall we say, by Nat Hyken, who uh, created the Phil Silvers show and frankly uh, brought Phil Silvers uh, uh, to uh, a certainly a higher level of fame than he ever had before uh, because he was a fan, Hyken was, of this Steve Bilko character who uh, for three years uh, in between major league uh, uh stops, played and was revered as the star player, the star attention grabber for the Los Angeles Angels. I mean, knocking it out of the park, literally and figuratively, with home runs and all kinds of other batting records, 
uh, and he was, uh, by all accounts, in that period of time, about as big a star as you were going to find locally in the Los Angeles area. Steve Bilko uh, was essentially like the Babe Ruth, if you will, of, of the Los Angeles baseball scene. And again, there was no Major League Baseball at this time. The Dodgers hadn't moved here yet. The, uh, the um, uh, Giants hadn't moved here yet, 1957. Um, this was, or 58 for the first season. The, this, 1956, you have to understand, this was essentially not only the peak of the LA Angels uh, uh, experience in the PCL, but uh, this was essentially uh, a really a proving ground. This PCL, this Angels team, the Hollywood Stars too, that Los Angeles was more than ready for top tier baseball. And through a whole bunch of different sort of intriguing uh, uh, situations and, and um, dramatic turns, uh, the Angels became essentially kind of a pawn in uh, the Dodgers actually uh, coming to Los Angeles. It was the the ownership uh, of uh, of the Angels, uh, the um, uh, the various uh, 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 intrigue behind uh, how the Dodgers wound up coming to Los Angeles. Hey, Steve Bilko even uh, was was part of some uh, of some of that effort. Uh, Chavez Ravine and and its uh, location and its uh, frankly being given away in, in many respects to the Dodgers organization. All of that is encompassed in this fascinating story. So we talk about. All this stuff about the Los Angeles Angels of the Pacific Coast League. The 1956 version is largely the central part of this conversation. And Steve Bilko is largely the uh, the face around it. But make no mistake, there's a lot of other stuff here. There's the formation of the Los Angeles Angels, part of how uh, Brooklyn wound up coming to Los Angeles, why um, and how Dodger Stadium got to where it uh, became located. Um, what happened to Steve Bilko both before his turns as uh, as the star player of the Angels, as well as afterwards. Uh, and interestingly, at the very end of his career in 1961, guess what? He actually became one of the first players to be brought into the Los Angeles Angels expansion franchise in 1961 of Major League Baseball. Yes, that's Orange County ultimately getting their franchise, but it was a second L.A. Major League Baseball team. And Steve Bilko got to play his last two seasons of professional ball for the team and the name that he starred with in the 19, late 1950s in the PCL version of the Los Angeles Angels. Keep up with me, friends. This is a fascinating conversation about a, a more wonderful and joyful and uh, optimistic, I guess, less cynical time in baseball history. It's the Pacific Coast League, the Los Angeles Angels, and the 1956 version in particular with our guest this week, Galen White, and uh, it's a treat. You'll enjoy the conversation, and it's coming up in just a moment's time. We, of course, want to thank uh, one of our great sponsors, and we're going to go back to the well again with our friends at Royal Retros. That's royalretros.com. And uh, Dustin Alameda and his pals there put all kinds of great uh, blood, sweat, and tears into, uh, into their offerings. And this week is no exception. Uh, how about... Uh, a wonderful throwback jersey, custom made. It ships in about four to six weeks. You can get your name on it and stuff, but literally painstakingly crafted and and derived from all the great photography uh, uh, to to the point of being uh, uh, about as accurate as you're going to find. A Los Angeles Angels throwback jersey from 1942. It's wonderfonderfully made. It's got the little LA logo there. It's got uh, a really cool um, 
health uh, logo. Uh, it looks like it was some kind of a, a sort of a sponsorship of some sort. Uh, it's got Los Angeles across the front. Uh, if you want the away version in gray, it's there are two different versions to choose from. Uh, and it's one of just the many, many throwback jerseys and customizable at that that you can find, along with T-shirts and other great stuff. At Royal Retros, uh, royalretros.com, they call themselves the king of throwbacks. And of course, you'll see why by going to the site. Uh, and of course, once you find what you're going to uh, 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 put down your hot uh, cash uh, or PayPal or Venmo for, I don't think they take Bitcoin yet, but whatever you choose and whatever you choose to buy, make sure that you enter this promo code at checkout. It's SEATS, S-E-A-T-S, SEATS. That's the promo code for 10% off all of your purchases at royalretros.com. Uh, and again, the Los Angeles Angels throwback jersey from 1942. It's smart looking and um, just one of a, a bevy of, of great items for you to choose from at our pals. And thank you for their sponsorship, of course, at royalretros.com. Check them out. You'll be glad you did, as they say. All right. As we say, let's get into it, shall we? Here's our great conversation with uh, Galen White. Uh, wonderful uh, topic, uh, wonderful uh, conversation and discussion. And um, I learned a lot about the uh, baseball scene in the 1950s. I almost wish I had sort of been around to ex uh, experience it. But why reminisce about something that's not possible when you can talk to the person who is actually there in the flesh and can kind of give us a clear-eyed view of it? Here's our conversation with Galen White we had just a couple of days ago. Please, as always, enjoy. I wanted to get maybe a little bit of a background before we get into this uh, fun story about the uh, the L.A. Angels of the Pacific Coast League back in the day in 56. You, you started, actually, as a as a sports writer in earnest before kind of going off in a different direction career wise. And, and do I kind of have this right that you kind of, have, if you will, boomeranged back into sports writing, albeit in a different form? Well, I was I had unfinished business, you might say, Tim. <laughs> uh I started out as a sports writer. You're correct. I uh, left California to go to the University of Oklahoma so I could be part of a great football program there. Bud Wilkinson was in his last year uh, as coaching when I was a freshman. Um, I went back out to California to go to junior college because uh, my girlfriend at the time was dating someone else and I didn't want her to. So eventually we got married. I returned to Oklahoma and went into sports writing and uh, found out I was I need, needed a little bit more money to raise the family that I had. So I went into the corporate world. But uh, when I did that, I had already started some things that I wanted to complete. The research from the Bilko book, see, Bilko died in 1976. So I, uh, see, 78. I, I interviewed him in 76, in November, and went to Nanticoke, Pennsylvania. So I'm glad I started it then. That was the beginning uh, two of my books, Bilko Athletic Club and Left on Base in the Bush Leagues, were uh, started in the 70s. So for many years, I had these two books hanging out there. They were kind of gorillas on my back. And uh, finally, I finished them after I retired from the corporate world. And along with those two, I've done three other books. So I think that's great because you've essentially, you know, you kind of started in earnest in, in what you thought was a, I guess, was a passion or, or a calling uh, realize sort of the realities of life and, and having been a fledgling journalist in my uh, early years as well, and then kind of fleeing to the 
semi-safer world of, of corporate advertising and then then by extension, media technology and investments and that kind of stuff. But, you know, this podcast in, a, in an odd way is sort of a, a way for me, although I'm not retired per se from the day job, uh, it's, at least it, it allows me to proverbially scratch that itch uh, in an audio form with, with an, you know, a topic and a, and a, and a, and a, a zone of interest for, for whatever reasons around teams and leagues and stuff because nobody else is writing about them or talking about them. Well, there are more options today to do what you're doing. When I was uh, younger, you didn't have all these opportunities to branch out. Now, as a uh, college student, I wanted to be both a sports writer and a sportscaster. But at that time, you didn't have very many guys doing both. It's only been uh, in more recent years that, that some of the sports writers got into sportscasting. You went one way or the other at that time. Uh, I wound up going into sports writing because I just liked uh, the the printed word better. And I felt I had a, a greater talent in that area. And I also didn't feel that I had uh, realized all my potential as a writer when I went into the corporate world. In fact, when I went into the corporate world, I was working for Allmark. I was bored. So I would go out to Royal Stadium, which was new at that time. Uh, I did some work for the Royals. I also used that opportunity to do a lot of the interviews for the book because the players like Billy Martin, well, he was a manager at the time, but a lot of the people I wanted to interview would come through Kansas City, Joe Gragiola, for example, uh, who I interviewed extensively by Steve Bilkel. So I, I used that time out at Royal Stadium to gather a lot of the material. And then when I started to travel a lot more in the corporate world, because I left Hallmark to go to Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company, I would use my uh, trips uh, when I was in the area of somebody I wanted to talk to, to interview those players. So on the one hand, it was a blessing. On the other hand, uh, it really did slow up uh, the completion of the books. Yeah, but you see kids out there as you're listening, right? Uh, that's the uh, the great way to kind of um, uh, get the, sort of the side hustle uh, paid for by the man, if you will, and, uh, <laughs> and you know, without sort of leaking out, right? Uh, I guess the only other, I guess, uh, sports-related kind of realm of that would be maybe the refereeing thing, right? Which tends to be, you have to kind of more, that has to be more of an officially, you know, a uh, sanctioned kind of thing so that, you know, both uh, corporate environments kind of, uh, you know, uh, can can handle each other with schedules and that kind of stuff. But but no, I mean, you, you're describing, frankly, uh, uh, you know, a, a way to kind of keep the, I don't know, the, the, the passion, the side project, the whatever, you know, in, in the background and, you know, kind of, yeah, work to live, so to speak, but then also live to work somehow, right? Well, you in the corporate world, of course, I had to keep some of these things under the radar. There were some people I could be a little bit more open with. Uh, I remember the vice president of public relations at Goodyear, who was a big sports fan, and he knew I was uh, working on a book when they hired me. And to him, that was, I think, one of the reasons he hired me because he liked the stories that I was telling him about what I was working on. And I think he wanted to provide a, uh, a vehicle for me to finish what I had started. So it, 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 for some people, it was, uh, uh, helpful. Others, you just didn't want them to know a whole lot, a whole lot about what you were doing. But growing up in Los Angeles, uh, back to the beginning, uh, uh, I went to games at Wrigley field and that is where most people, will identify with Home Run Derby. The original Home Run Derbies were at Wrigley Field in Los Angeles. A lot of your television movies, uh, Ronald Reagan was in the one where he plays um, uh, Grover Cleveland Alexander. Um, he, uh, uh, that was filmed at Wrigley Field. So a lot of your movies were filmed at Wrigley Field. That's where I went to games as a kid with my father and my brother. 
And I really fell in love with the ballpark and, uh, and became a Cubs fan because the Angels at that time were a Cubs farm team. Yeah, and that was that was going to be sort of the how did this the idea of the of of doing this book sort of get started? Well, you know, we had a conversation a, a number of months ago with the, uh, Dan Taylor about the Hollywood stars, and and the thing that that kind of struck me in that conversation, and maybe this is sort of a, the grist, sort of the on ramp to to this conversation is, we'll get to the rivalry and all that stuff in, in Los Angeles in a second, but it, I almost got the feeling doing the research that. Uh, the Angels were the more, if you will, Hollywood of the teams versus, say, the, the, the interestingly named Hollywood stars in terms of uh, how many stars and filmings and those kinds of things. I mean, you mentioned Home Run Derby. I, I get the feeling that Wrigley Field in L.A. was more, I guess, uh, uh, connoted or overlapping maybe with the entertainment industry. Or do I have that wrong? Or is it maybe maybe it was more fondly or or deeply remembered, perhaps, than the stars? Well, Gilmore Field was located in Hollywood, and it was also owned by a group of movie stars. So it was more Hollywood, you might say. It was more glamorous. More of the uh, actors and actresses went to games there uh, in Hollywood. Uh, the Wrigley Field, of course, as compared with Gilmore Field, was the bigger star as a ballpark. But the fans of the Angels were more blue-collar types. Uh, Groucho Marx, however, went to uh, games at Wrigley Field, and there were a few others. I believe um, uh, Nat King Cole also went to games at Wrigley Field. But your basic clientele was quite different uh, between the stars. It was more the glamour, the Hollywood type, the entertainers. And over at Wrigley Field, you had uh, people like my father, who was a minister. I remember one time going to a game um, – Actually, we were going to a game at Wrigley Field, I mean, at Gilmore Field. And my father, an Angels fan, and his friend, also a minister, was a Hollywood Stars fan. And they started needling each other. And my dad said to him, he said, Gene, how can you be, how can you be a Christian and pull against the Angels? <laughs> so <laughs> there was this rivalry. Now, he was kidding, of course. But uh, there was this rivalry. And uh, – I went to games at Wrigley Field. I mean, it was a beautiful ballpark. You were close to the action. You were closer to the action at Gilmore Field. In fact, you were right on top of it there. It was a smaller ballpark. But Wrigley Field was built in 1925. It was really the original Wrigley Field because a Cubs, uh, the Cubs called their park, which was built earlier, they called it Cubs Park until 1926 when they renamed it Wrigley. So if you're ever uh, in a trivia contest, want to know, the original Wrigley Field. It was not Chicago. It was in Los Angeles. Well, don't get me started on the uh, Chicago uh, chai feds and the, the original <laughs> reason and uh, behind the whales and the, the actual origin origination. Right uh, now, I come. From, I my I married into just uh, not not only Cub fans, but just the, the the whole all that comes with it. So I, you know, I just it, <laughs> it's uh, it's a very uh, uh, it's it's now seeped into my blood, even though I grew up in the New York area, but. Um, I, but so describe this and we'll, we'll get into the 56 season specifically in a minute. But th this was this was a, a real, you know, of out and out rivalry between these two teams right in the L.A. area. And I'm guessing that you couldn't you couldn't really kind of be a fan of both. You kind of had to really kind of choose one or the other, just like any other dual team rivalry in the United States. Red Sox, Yankees. Yeah. Just think of it that way. In fact, uh, Irv Katz, who was a PR man for the Angels, the Stars, uh, went on to do some work for the Dodgers. 
uh, he uh, compared it with the Red Sox and the Yankees, and it was just like that. There were brawls. Uh, there, in fact, one of the biggest fights was in Life magazine, uh, which was a big magazine at that time, and it uh, commanded like six pages of photographs. And there was some real uh, slugging going on during that fight. In fact, they called the police out to the ballpark, and the players, uh, only the players who were in the game could be in the dugout. The rest had to stay in the clubhouse. Uh, gives you an idea of uh, what that particular fight was like. But they were fighting all the time. Now, were some of them staged? Uh, some of the players I interviews, George uh, Freeze, who played both for the Stars and the Angels, believed some of them were staged. Uh, or at least, uh, you know, there was uh, uh, something done to try to create the friction that would lead to a fight. But uh, the fans got into it, let me tell you that. And uh, the Stars-Angels games, uh, uh, my father was not one to get too worked up about anything, but he got worked up over the stars angels games as well as my brother and I. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm guessing it was also aided and abetted by the fact that Los Angeles, uh, it wasn't the second largest metropolitan area like it is today, but it was certainly, uh, on the, uh, uh, hugely upward trajectory, right? Because of the film industry and the entertainment industry and just growing all kinds of different industries and stuff. Um, and media, right. Was, uh, pretty pronounced there. And I'm guessing, um, perhaps unlike, you know, any other quote unquote minor league, we'll get into that in a minute. Um, you had, you know, top tier television stations and radio stations covering this thing like it was uh, an American league or a national league kind of setup. Well, the two announcers were quite well known. Mark Scott was the announcer on Home Run Derby. He was the stars play by play announcer. Uh, Bob Kelly, who best known as the voice of the L.A. Rams, and he his voice and faces appears in a lot of uh, uh, movies that related to football. So Kelly was the play-by-play announcer for the Angels. Neither liked each other. Their animosity towards each other was real. That translated into the airways, and it riled up the fans. Then you had players on the Stars side like Carlos Bernier. He was from Puerto Rico, had a hot temper. Bobby Bregan was a manager there, and uh, the Stars had more players kicked out in one of the seasons. I think it was 1953 it was, because that's when Bernier and uh, Bobby Bregan were together for the first time. Uh, probably during the course of that year, they probably got kicked out a combined 50 times. It was amazing. They were getting kicked out all the time. There were fights all the time. And Mark Scott, his sign-off on his broadcast was, and, and remember, sports fans, whether you win or lose, always be a good sport. Well, that little sign-off slogan would rile my brother and I up and I thought, how could this bunch talk about being a good sport when they're fighting all the time? Yeah, that's something. So, but, but I guess then growing up in L.A., this was essentially as close as a thing to a, uh, a, a top-tier sports rivalry, right? I mean, the, I'm sure you followed baseball, you know, in the eastern hinterlands, right? But, you know, this is before the time, not until the late 50s, right, till the the— you know, the two New York teams obviously boldly moved uh, to California. I mean, this was uh, the Pacific Coast League was I don't even I, I would, wouldn't even call it borderline professional because I think even Pants Rowland, who was running the league at the time, had had eyes towards taking this kind of competition and, and the solid talent that was all, all up and down the, the West Coast, the Pacific Coast League, and almost maybe even going into the major leagues somehow, some way. Well, most of the players in the league, in the Pacific Coast League, had played in the majors. There were some of the younger players. Bill Mazeroski 
uh, Hall of Famer with the Pirates. He came up through uh, Hollywood. He was an 18-year-old playing for the Hollywood Stars. Mudcat Grant, who went on to have a great uh, career in the majors, he came through with San Diego Padres. And if you go back further, Joe DiMaggio and uh, Dom uh, came out of this, uh, San Francisco, the San Francisco Seals. Uh, Ted Williams came out of the San Diego Padres, as did Bobby Doerr, both Hall of Famers. So the league produced a lot of uh, great players over the years. Somehow or another, after the World War II, it still had a lot of major leaguers in there, but they were more past their prime. Uh, and they uh, they preferred playing in the West Coast. They made more money. Uh, they traveled by plane. And the climates were much more conducive to a player who wanted to play longer because you didn't have the humidity and the heat of the East. Uh, you traveled by plane rather than by train. So the players liked playing on the West Coast. And then for much of the period after World War II leading up to the Dodgers and Giants coming to L.A. in 58, you had uh, the teams would go into a town. Let's say the San Francisco Seals would come into L.A. They play Hollywood for seven days, and then they play L.A. for seven days, the Angels. So they'd stay in the same town, even though they were traveling for 14 days. You can get a lot of trouble doing that. <laughs> okay, so explain to me then the, the – the state of the league in the 1950s. You'll, you'll see. We're getting it. We're getting into the season specifically. We'll get there. Yeah. Uh, but I, it feels to me that, and I'm I, look. I'm an armchair historian at best, right? So you you know this subject far better than I, and hence the sort of curiosity factor of this this little show. But I, explain to me in the 50s. It feels to me like the like the Pacific Coast League was either overtly or covertly or somewhere in between flirting with or pursuing or not afraid to be confused with the quote-unquote two major leagues uh, in terms of all of it, right? And I guess fueled perhaps in L.A. in particular with two white-hot uh, rival teams. Well, uh, so you had a combination of things. We as fans, um, we had, you might say, and I still do to some degree, although I'm getting over it, Tim, a chip on our shoulders about the Eastern sports writers and their arrogance. They were always putting down teams from the West Coast, including your, our football teams. I, I was a big UCLA Bruins football fan, and the rivalry with USC was a great rivalry. But uh, nobody talked about it uh, back East. It was all, if they, as far as uh, West as they went in terms of their interest and their coverage, was Notre Dame and South Bend. So we were left out of most of the conversations, both in football and baseball. So to us, the Pacific Coast League was our major league. We made no apologies for it. These players, we saw some great players come through the league. Um, uh, and, and, of course, a lot of the teams uh, played uh, exhibition games out in L.A. I remember in 1955, the Cleveland Indians and the New York Giants playing a game at Wrigley Field. They packed Wrigley Field out. Capacity was only 25,000. But it was a replay of the World Series the year before between the Indians and the Giants. It was a great, and it was just, you know, we, we saw our Major League Baseball in the spring when the teams would come out there, and a lot of them uh, did spring training there in, in California or Arizona. And then, of course, during the regular season, we saw the Coast League. And for, to us, it was uh, as good as what we saw. Now, the only uh, Major League Baseball we saw through much of the 50s would be at the end of the season would be the World Series, and there'd be the Dodgers against the Yankees every year. Ho-hum. Uh, it was great baseball, but we didn't see much of it. What we saw mostly was in the ballparks of the West Coast. 
But that's also, it's not like you didn't know any better, right? I mean, you saw national coverage or sort oh, yeah. of read, right? Yeah. But but indeed, it was sort of this sort of, I guess, East Coast or Midwest and or Midwestern provincial kind of approach because it wasn't, quote unquote, the major leagues. Oh, we knew about Willie Mays and Stan Musial and uh, greatly appreciated. In fact, my father, I remember um, traveling uh, east one uh, summer and took us to a game at um, Old Bush Stadium, and we saw Stan Musial play. I remember quite well. Harvey the Cat Burkeen was a pitcher for the Cardinals. Uh, I would have been six years old. That was 1952. Um, later years, of course, uh, I went to Wrigley Field in Chicago, and that was great, but I felt, hey, I – uh, I didn't even know the one in L.A. was the originally named L.A. before Chicago. But I felt, look, I was at, uh, I, I enjoyed it more in L.A. than I did in Chicago because when I went to the games in Chicago, uh, it wasn't like today. Uh, there was a lot of empty seats and there were kids running around uh, taking the seats that were up and clapping them down, making a lot of noise. So I more enjoyed the games in L.A. than Chicago. Yeah, and and the park was probably a little bit more intimate, uh, even even more so than Wrigley here in in Chicago in terms of its uh, absolutely yeah yeah it was yeah. well like I say if you watch uh, watch the original home run derby and you get a pretty good feel there were uh, houses uh, behind the left field wall and uh, Steve Bilko and another uh, player who they had in 1955 and I write about in the Bilko Athletic Club Buzz Clarkson he'd been a great Negro Leagues player and. Also played in Puerto Rico, had a lot of power. He was close to 40 years old when he came to L.A. in 1955. He had hit 42 home runs the previous year in the Texas League. Uh, Buzz uh, targeted this one house uh, over the left field wall, and he once uh, hit a hole through the door over there. There was a picture in the paper of kids looking at the hole. Um, I mean, those were the kind of things that uh, really um, enamored you with the ballpark and its players. You, um, that they, they became king size heroes to us. Um, not as well known to the rest of the country, of course. I mean, Willie Mays and, and uh, those players, Mickey Mantle, were known all over the country, and our stars often were not. Although, you know, Steve Bilko, who again I write about in the Bilko Athletic Club, uh, he had some fine years with the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, his rookie season, he had 21 home runs in 1953, so he'd been to the majors, and many of the players. Uh, and the Coast Lake had been to the majors before they came out and played for the Angels or the Stars. All right, what's this? Bet DSI. All right. Well, hey, you're looking for a place to bet on NFL and, and NCAA football? Well, bet DSI is an industry leader, perhaps even the industry leader in football betting and is the perfect sports book for both novice and professional bettors alike. At BetDSI, you can also enjoy live in-game betting. So what's that mean? Well, that means you can not only bet your favorite teams, but you can do uh, that and all kinds of different prop bets and, and various situations all game long on nearly every play to the final whistle. BetDSI has been around for 20 years and paying winners all along the way. 10,000 and more betting options daily in all the sports you love to watch. Uh, daily fantasy, uh, top ratings on all the betting review sites, you name it, BetDSI uh, uh, is the way to go. They've got a very user-friendly interface and mobile site and has the fastest payouts in the industry. Simply play, you win, and you get paid. Doesn't get better than that. 
Plus, BetDSI offers betting options for just about everything. NFL, college football, sure, but NBA, NHL, UFC, golf, other sports, politics even, reality TV, esports, virtually everything. Try live betting at BetDSI and you can bet on every major sport and event through the entire game, every play, and every minute. So, new members, that's what you're here for, right? New members get a 100% bonus match to their deposit when you use the promo code SEATS100. Again, 100% a bonus match when you use promo code SEATS100. That's more than double your money to start winning today. So, once again, go to betdsi.com and use the promo code SEATS100 and get this limited time 100% bonus offer and make some extra cash on the sports you know and love. And additionally, if you use Bitcoin, you'll get an additional 100% deposit bonus on your first two deposits up to $2,000. It all adds up to BetDSI being the place to do your betting as the football season approaches. It's only a game until you bet it at BetDSI. Thank you, BetDSI, for your sponsorship of this episode. And now, back to our conversation. All right, so set, set the tone here for the the team circa 1956. I guess this is really a, another way of asking. Put the Angels uh, into context for me in the 1950s. Uh, this is obviously a number of years and maybe still not before uh, the rumblings and maybe the um, uh, admission that uh, two uh, major league teams were going to come and, and colonize uh, California. But, but put the Angels in perspective uh, in the 50s, sort of paint a picture for me. And I think it's also helpful, too, through the eyes of your childhood, right? We, I will say that having done this show for, geez, almost five years now, um, there is definitely a thread uh, about teams and leagues and whatnot in, in uh, young adults, certainly generally males, but not exclusively, in their childhood, their impressionable youth when it comes to sports and the teams or leagues that come across their immediate radar as they're growing up, uh, there's an attachment there, right? And it's um, it kind of is kind of uh, sort of uh, uh, sort of uh, gilded, I guess, uh, in into one's memory. And it's uh, I, I have a feeling this is sort of a, a similar situation with you. It's field of dream stuff, uh, Tim. Uh, I um, have a friend, Bill Swank, who's a baseball historian for, in particular, the San Diego Padres. Uh, he once said to me, the greatest era of baseball, Galen, is when you're a kid. And that really is because you're impressionable. These are your first heroes. You're not cynical. You see these guys um, just through, you know, the eyes of a kid. And so let's say a Steve Belko, who was a massive man, a six foot one, uh, 235 pounds. That was probably at his lightest. Uh, he often played as he, he played as, as heavy as 270 pounds. I mean, uh, he, he looked like Babe Ruth to me when I saw him for the first time as a nine year old in 1955. Buzz Clarkson, who was on that same team, and I mentioned him earlier, he was a black man, played in the Negro Leagues, tremendous power. He looked like old man Moses at third base, the way he moved, but he he, he, he was a good fielder, and when he hit the ball, I thought he was Josh Gibson, although I didn't know much about Josh Gibson at that time. So these players that you would see, uh, they were um, 
uh, it was like in the movies. They were they were uh, much larger than life. Not only because you're a kid, but because um, you know, these guys were not well known outside of the areas where they played. So when they came to us, we then sort of adopted them as if they're your own. And I think that's one of the great things about minor league baseball, and one of the reasons that I've written so much about the minors is that when the players pass through these small towns, these towns connect with those players, and then they co- they associate with these players as they go on in their careers. They become part of that town. So when the Angels had, and I was e- even younger, uh, Gene Baker, uh, an outstanding shortstop, black shortstop, who joined the Angels in 1950. Now, I was just thinking about this the other day. I remember Baker playing. I was six years old, uh, six and seven. He he played with the Angels for four years. He wasn't called up until 53. And when he went up, he went up same time as Ernie Banks. And he was a better shortstop, by the way, than Ernie Banks. But he was older and more experienced, and he moved to second base. And so Ernie Banks and Gene Baker became the first uh, all-black double play combination. Um, so Baker, I started to follow him with the Angels where he became – uh, initially my favorite player with the Cubs. And then, of course, Ernie Banks uh, took over, and he became Mr. Cub, and he became my favorite as well. But the players you – it was like you discovered these players when you were a small kid. And then they you followed them on through their career, and that's that's the way it was uh, through uh, for some other guys who came uh, from the Angels and went on up. I, I didn't remember seeing Frankie Baumholtz play with the Angels, but he went on to star for the Cubs. And because I knew he played for the Angels, well, I automatically um, followed him. One of my books is I did with Ransom Jackson, uh, and uh, that book is called Accidental Big Leaguer. And he was a two-time All-Star for the Cubs, then went on to play for the Dodgers, and he actually replaced Jackie Robinson when Jackie retired. Um, I wrote a book again with uh, Ransom Jackson, and I, I had first heard of Ransom because he played for the Angels. And I might not have even done the book, except that I was so fascinated with his history. Uh, he'd played college football at TCU in Texas, uh, played in the same backfield as Bobby Lane, a great uh, quarterback in at Texas and the NFL. Um, so I write about Ransom and, you know, I kind of get my fill of the Cubs in the early 50s. So, yeah, it's 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 been a, a writing about all these books, but t- particularly the 56 Angels was, um, you might say, a love letter. In fact, I had somebody tell me that the book read like a love letter. That's fine. Um, I hope it conveyed some of the passion that I felt at that time. Well, let's let's talk about Bilko, because it sounds like he's uh, not only the star, but also indicative of uh, the types of players that were uh, sprinkled around this Angels team, and maybe even, by extension, some of the, the other PCL clubs, too, because this is a guy, right, who got his start with the Cardinals, right, in in uh, the National League, what, 49 to 54, had a fairly significant cup of coffee with the Cubs, and then effectively got, if you will, sent down, right, to the LA Angels, which, interestingly, uh, and maybe we'll get into this, but either rejuvenated his career or proved the National Leaguer types wrong about his abilities, or, or maybe a combination of the two. But, but I'm getting a sense that kind of alluding to our my observation earlier right this this Pacific Coast League right was just as stocked with quote unquote major leaguers as the major leagues themselves whether they were going up or down or frankly just 
not given a fair shake in the other, um, you know, in the uh, those other leagues. Well, let's kind of break it down this way. Bilko broke in with the Cardinals at age 20. He was thrown into the middle of a pennant race in 1949. The Cardinals were uh, nip and tuck with the Dodgers. The Dodgers uh, wound up winning the pennant. But Bilko uh, did quite well in the brief period of time he was played near the end of the season. He, uh, they had some injuries, and Bilko was at first base, and he, he you might say, carried his weight. A at, for the 1950 season, they played Bilko up as if he was going to be the next Lou Gehrig, the next Jimmy Fox. Um, the publicity that Bilko got was tremendous. He came to spring training uh, in the eyes of the Cardinals overweight. They also tried to make him uh, a pole hitter. He was not a pole hitter. His power was to left center and right center. Um, so they wound up, at, and Joe Gargiola, I write about this in the book, they wind up putting him in a sweatsuit. Uh, to lose this weight, and he lost a tremendous amount of weight in a short period of time. It was something you wouldn't see today. Uh, it was just ridiculous. But here was a guy, too, that could hit a, as Graziola said, he could hit a ball over a fence with his elbow, and they were trying to make a pole hitter out of him. So the combination of making him a pole hitter, uh, uh, finding him if he was uh, over a certain weight that they had specified for him, uh, it played with the guy's head, and he was – Bilko was a simple guy. Uh, he wanted to be loved. He wanted to succeed. He wanted to lose weight, as his managers wanted him to, uh, to do. But um, it didn't help. He was a great beer drinker, too, by the way. <laughs> but uh, he, he just couldn't do it. So he wound up, uh, after a few uh, 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 failures with the Cardinals, in 1953, he is batting cleanup for the Cardinals. He's there with Stan Musial, Rich Haindings, uh having a great year, and he drove in 84 runs as a rookie, hit 21 home runs. Uh, his batting average was 251. He did lead the league in strikeouts, but if I gave you the number, 125, that's nothing compared to what these guys strike out today. So Bilko had a great uh, rookie season. It so happened that uh, the Cardinals did not have a black player. And on the West Coast, there was a first baseman named Tom Alston, who had hit quite a few home runs in San Diego, which was a ballpark very friendly to left-handers. Um, the Cardinals made Tom Alston their first black player. Well, he was going head-to-head to Bilko, and the Cardinals decided to keep Alston and get rid of Bilko. That's how he wound up with the Cubs. Well, the Cubs had a pretty good first baseman named D. Fondi, um, a better fielder than Bilko, but not as uh, good a hitter. Bilko uh, didn't get a chance to play much at all. Um, Although, you know, Ransom Jackson saw him play enough to where I remember in talking with Ransom about Bilko, he said uh, he said he hit the ball like the old cartoons where they have the baseball goes off screaming in the distance. And that's the way Bilko was. He was a great power hitter. Come the 55 season, uh, the Cubs sent him down, sent him to Los Angeles. Bil- Bilko did not want to go. He is from Nanticoke, Pennsylvania. Uh, he did not want to play on the West Coast. He had previously played in the minors in Rochester, much closer to his home. So he didn't want to go to Los Angeles until the manager there at the time, Bill Sweeney, said to him, I'm not going to bother you about your weight. I'm going to leave you alone. I don't want to know what you weigh. Well, that was music to Bill Cole's ears. Um, Nobody was going to be nagging him about his weight. Well, he had a great season that first year. He had uh, 37 home runs. That was 1955. In 1956, He's like Babe Ruth. He wins the Triple Crown on the West Coast. He hits 55 home runs, leads the league in hitting, 
164 runs batted in. So I'm 10 years old when Bilko has this uh, Ruthian-type season in Los Angeles. So who do you think I think he is? Babe Ruth. <laughs> and and I wasn't the only one. You've heard of Bobby Gritch, who was a fine ball player with sure. the Baltimore Orioles and the California Angels. Gritch is a couple years younger than I, and he uh, wrote one of the blurbs for the book. And, and he said that to him, uh, uh, Steve Bilko was Babe Ruth, Mickey Mantle, and Ted Williams all rolled into one. And that's the way we felt. In, in doing your research, what was his state of mind going from the Cubs uh, if you will, down to the miners in, in, in Los Angeles. I, you know, this is, I, 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 in doing some of my crack research, right? I, he was, uh, Bilko was, um, uh, at least I, I, the, uh, Cubs announcer in 54 was hoping he would be part of, of a, of a double play combo that he could nickname bingo to bango to Bilko. Uh, it didn't sort yeah. of work out that way. There were a handful of games where that could have been the case, but I, I get the sense that, you know, he was kind of, you know, known and, and uh, had some kind of uh, cachet. And all of a sudden now he's being, if you will, sent down to the Myers. I'll be at the Pacific Coast League, right? Unique in its own way. But uh, it's clear that he responded quite well and became the vital cog and, and, and truly a star when he came to Los Angeles. But I got a, I have the feeling that he didn't sort of feel that way as he was getting ready to pack up and go. No, at first he did not want to be there. Then and and at first he struggled, um, but midway through the uh, '55 season uh, he took off. Uh, the fans uh, uh, he quickly became a favor of the fans after hearing a few boos early on, but um, he, he he the fans fell in love with him. Uh, he became a folk hero. He was an original folk hero. Um, you know, keep in mind, LA had not had other than in football had not really had any great stars. They'd had in the college ranks, John Arnett. They'd had um, uh, with the Rams, uh, Bob Waterfield, Norm Van Brocklin, but no one in baseball because they hadn't had a major league team. Uh, so here comes Bilko, this big guy. Uh, he had been in the majors. He was an affable guy. Everybody loved Steve Bilko. And uh, other people were like me. They'd go to the ballpark and see Bilko hit one of these monster home runs, and he looked like Babe Ruth. Well, guess what? He became our Babe Ruth. Um, he was also kind of a guy that people could relate to. Uh, he watched Lawrence Welk on television. He preferred roller derby in terms of uh, other things he watched. Um, he wa- he liked uh, his favorite song was White Sports Coat and a pink. Uh, see, uh, with a Marty um, uh, uh, can't think Robin song, a White Sports Coat and the Pink Carnation. He, um, you know, he, he was a beer drinker. He didn't like wine. Uh, the other thing that helped him out was in 1955, there was a television series that came out called You'll Never Get Rich, starring Phil Silvers. It became known as the Phil Silvers Show. Well, guess what character he plays? Sergeant Bilko. Why did they call it Sergeant Bilko? Well, it's because uh, the producer and Neil Simon was one of the screenwriters. Uh, Bilko was their favorite player. So they picked Steve Bilko as uh, Phil Silvers' name. Silvers is quoted as saying, I could have just as well been corporate, Corporal Hodges or private first class mutual. I gave, gave it to a guy who needed it. So that's that was Steve Bilko. People could connect with him. Uh, he it wasn't. Sounds, it sounds like there's a relatability there. And that hiking. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yes. And all that. Yeah. I can I can see where that that can 
literally rub off, if you will, in terms of uh, of spinning off a character or or making that that relatable. He just seems like he's kind of a, a guy's guy, so to speak, and and fans could sort of uh, attach to that, even even despite his play on the field. Well, I'll give you an example. He'd go into a bar and uh, somebody would buy him a beer. He'd buy him a beer back. And that was the kind of guy he was. And uh, uh, people couldn't believe how nice a guy he was. He wasn't arrogant at all. In fact, uh, Jim Brosnan, who was his teammate uh, in Los Angeles in 1955 and got and was a roommate of uh, uh, Steve Bilko, uh, he uh, and, and Jim Brosnan did a couple books, one called The Long Season, the other one called Pennant Race. And actually, he was the first uh, player to kind of take us inside the, the locker room. He did this long before Jim Bouton. But I remember uh, uh, Brosnan telling me, he said, psychologically, uh, Bilko had doubts about himself that were never resolved in major, major league competition. This was partly because he had such great success in the minor leagues. He was a genuine hero, an extraordinary performer. He couldn't really sustain that in the big leagues because he didn't have that kind of talent. He didn't have the arrogance either. All really good ball players have a good deal of arrogance about them. He didn't hand. He was never an egotistical fellow, which is a necessity for success in professional sports. And I always thought that was an interesting quote. Uh, now, was Henry Aaron arrogant? No. But he had supreme confidence in his ability. Uh, there's a lot of other guys you could look around and say they are arrogant. Aaron, I'll say right out of the, uh, the batter's box, was not an arrogant person. Uh, but the, I think it, it does require a certain arrogance, a certain level of confidence that you're better than everybody else. If you're a pitcher, you're going to get whoever's at the plate out. If you're a hitter, you're going to hit out of the ballpark whatever it is that pitcher pitches. Bilko, at least at the big league level, did not have that. Interesting. Did um, just curious. Any anecdotes about uh, uh, Bilko and Phil Silvers? Did they ever meet? Uh, or, oh yeah, yeah. See each other on the on the on the uh, in the on the, in the studio or, or the ballpark or either of those the publicity. Got well, when, publicity yeah. When, when they rolled out to Phil Silver, the, you'll never get rich. Of course, you know in their PR, they invited Bilko uh, to be there. He had to be talked into going by his teammate George Freeze. Uh, the, the series actually was introduced in '56. I might have said '55. Uh, Bilko did not want to go to the press uh, 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 reception in Hollywood. Uh, George Freeze uh, <clears throat> loaned him, uh, got him a suit, took him there. Uh, Bilko agreed only to go to it if Freeze went with him. Uh, there were publicity pictures taken. There's a picture of Phil Silvers with both Freeze and uh, Bilko in the book. Uh, yeah, they, they, and also at one point, Phil Silvers wanted to take Bilko to Las Vegas for a nightclub act. Bilko did not go. He was a shy man. He did not like the, the limelight. Uh, again, he was, if he wasn't at the ballpark, uh, hitting home runs, he preferred to be home with his kids and probably sipping on a brew. But he was a local celebrity though, right? In, in Los oh. Angeles, right? Again, reminder, LA, right? Major booming metropolis going on right now. And in essence, you know, unbeknownst to the East and, and Midwestern types, right? Um, you know, he's in the cradle of, of entertainment, right, With in Los Angeles. And, and being a, quote, unquote, local celebrity in Los Angeles, right, is a pretty big outsized deal versus maybe even some of the smaller markets in the National and American Leagues. His manager in 56, Bob Sheffing, uh, had this quote, more people in L.A. today know Bilkel than Marilyn Monroe. That gives you some idea. 
as to a celebrity. There was a sports columnist named Ned Cronin of the L.A. Times. He once wrote, um, remember, 1956 was an election year. Uh, Eisenhower uh, was running against Ed Lee Stevenson. And so Cronin suggested that uh, there be a ticket of uh, Mano and Bilko. Mano was for president and Bilko for vice president. And he wrote, a vote against Bilko, a, a vote against Mano and Bilko is a vote against home, mother, and bottled beer. Mickey is a sense to get the ballot of every man and woman who can tell the difference between a third base, three base hit, and a crock of cumwats. Bilko, of course, is a cinch to sweep California. And since the vice presidential candidacy seems to be a matter of grave concern, Richard Nixon was the vice president under President Eisenhower, uh, and that's what he's referring to there, a campaign and a campaign issue of stirring dimensions, it is comforting to have a nominee who's popular with one and all, except possibly the pitcher Stout Steve has threatened with decapitation while taking a turn at bat. So, yes, uh, he was extremely popular. Even um, Hollywood stars fans, uh, I remember talking with Wes Parker. I was out on the West Coast and visiting Dodger Stadium, and Wes Parker wanted to meet me and members of the Bilko family. We were there for uh, Steve's um, induction to the uh, Shrine of the Eternals, which is uh, part of the baseball reliquary, a poor man's uh, Cooperstown. And so the family, uh, Steve, of course, long since had passed away, but uh, this was 2015 after the book came out, and we're in L.A., and Wes Parker comes to the ballpark. He was a, uh, an outstanding first baseman for the Dodgers, and, and he wanted to meet me, and he wanted to meet the family. He was a Hollywood Stars fan growing up, but he was also a Bilko fan because Bilko just cut across. Uh, it didn't matter who you rooted for. You liked Steve Bilko. He was the kind of guy you connected with. Uh, he hit these monstrous home runs. Um, he was the hero of a lot of kids, whether or not they were Angels fans. All right, I got a couple of questions about the composition of the team and, and, and Bilko in particular. <clears throat> you look at fifty six and fifty seven. Excuse me, fifty five through fifty seven. His his three seasons uh, in Los Angeles. A um, couple of things that that stand out to me. So number one, you know, uh, and thank God for things like BaseballReference.com with the don't forget the hyphen, <laughs> don't forget the hyphen in between baseball and reference. The uh, his stats just stand out. I mean, just like, I mean, egregiously so versus the rest of the team. I mean, maybe Jim Bulger, you know, on the, on that 56 team, you know, uh, looked pretty sterling as well. But I mean, this is a guy who, you know, led on in so many different sort of batting categories, let alone on the, on, I, 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 I'm assuming he was less a fielder than he was sort of a, 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 an offensive threat as a, as a batter. Um, but I'm, I'm just, my immediate question is, with stats like this, especially his long balls, I mean, 55 home runs in a season in 56 and and, and almost around the same output in, in the years prior and, and following, um, was he not getting another look at the National League to go back up for his second cup of coffee? Or was I, – I, I'm just curious because I – may, and maybe I'm looking at this through more modern lens, right? Um I'm surprised he stayed for three years in the PCL, given the kind of output he was putting out. Well, here's what happened, Tim. In 56, he was having this great year. He was box office, okay? He was the box office, uh, wherever they played. The Angels gave him a great contract, and they um, he signed a waiver to where no big league team could draft him. He wanted to stay in the West Coast. Why? Well, his salary 
uh, with the Angels was around $15,000. That was double what the major league minimum was at that time. So if Bilko had been in the major leagues um, at that time, he would have been making half of that. In fact, when he returned to the major leagues in 1958, he took a pay cut. In addition, his endorsements, personal appearances, uh, was another fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. Bilko was making between thirty and thirty-five thousand dollars. That doesn't sound like a lot of money today, but keep in mind what Mickey Mantle his salary was in nineteen fifty-six. Mickey Mantle's salary was thirty-five thousand dollars. So Steve Bilko, between his endorsements and his salary, was uh, doing uh, as well as Mickey Mantle was just on his salary. Now Mantle course, was picking up some endorsements on top of that. But that would give you an idea. He signed the two-year waivers so he could stay in L.A. Bilko's philosophy was, why did he want to go back to the big leagues at the major league minimum and sit on the bench as he was with the Cubs or with any other team? If he was going to go back to the majors, he wanted to start. He wanted to play every day where he felt he could do in the majors what he did in the minors. What's interesting now, the Reds, the Cincinnati Reds drafted him. They didn't keep him. They sent him out to the Dodgers. The Dodgers had Gil Hodges and had Norm Larker, so they were pretty well taken care of it at first base, even though Hodges was in the twilight of his career. But uh, Bilko, they they acquired Bilko primarily because there was a referendum about uh, Chavez Ravine, the land there where they were going to build Dodger Stadium. It was in danger of not passing, and the, and the uh, Dodgers acquired Bilko to help him at the gate. And at the ballot box, they won the referendum by about 26,000 votes. Buzzy Bavese, the junior manager, later said they would not have won that referendum and the rights to build the ballpark, Dodger Stadium, where they did without Steve Bilko. So Bilko, uh, in fact, Bavese said they should name a street there. They don't have one, but they should name a street there called Bilko Way because he paved the way for Dodger Stadium. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, that, that too, a very controversial and and still resonates today in terms of of that land and the displacement of the uh, of the families that that grew up there and and, and all of that, right? So, but uh, you can imagine how uh, contentious uh, a situation that uh, that story that situ- that that was, and but that that you're also now hinting at what was to come, right? I mean, so do, do you think? Bilko, and then I want to get I want to get to the other members of the team. And maybe, maybe this applies to this as well. Players in the two teams in Los Angeles, and perhaps even the Seals up in in San Francisco, did, did, were there was there any inclination that this Pacific Coast League thing was going to be potentially usurped by uh, a Bigfoot uh, team or two, uh, kind of? invading their territory, so to speak, and maybe not a bad idea to perhaps stick around because perhaps they could hook up with said major league team when one appeared? Or am I just projecting? Well, the best chance, yeah, the best chance the Coast League had of becoming a third major league was right after World War II and in the late 40s and early 50s. Um, they didn't take advantage on that of that. They they. Uh, some of the cities did not have ballparks that could would, were considered major league. Uh, probably the best ballpark in the league was Wrigley Field. Seal Stadium in San Francisco was the next. And not coincidentally, both cities got big league clubs when uh, the Dodgers and Giants moved west. Uh, of course, 
when the Dodgers came out in 58, everybody knew the American League was going to soon establish a team there, and they did in 1961. It was an expansion team. Guess who they drafted? Bilko. Guess where they played? Wrigley Field. Bilko hit uh, 20 home runs, by the way, that year, and the last home run hit at Wrigley Field was by Steve Bilko. He hit it off of Mudcat Grant. So it's it's a uh, it's a uh, kind of a, a romance story, Tim. If you want to know, I mean, for for a baseball fan, um, Bilko was the the darling of uh, of LA fans. Uh, he had these great years with the minor league Angels. He comes back with the Dodgers, and while uh, he didn't stay with the Dodgers long, uh, he is at least credited with helping them get Dodger Stadium uh, where they wanted to build it. And then, of course, he returns with the Angels in 61. He played with the Angels both in 61 and 62. He finished his career back in Rochester, New York, uh, where he had, had starred earlier on in his career. Uh, so Belko, um, you know, is, is uh, just one of the, again, kind of this folk hero that um, was the biggest baseball f- uh, star that, in, that we had in L.A. prior to the Dodgers, Koufax, and Drysdale later on, but that was several years later. All right, what's this? Lucy Nicotine. Yes. Well, hey, look, folks, we're all adults here, and some of us choose to use nicotine to relax, focus, or just unwind after a long day. And Lucy Nicotine is a company that was created to help nicotine users find a cleaner option and feel better about the ways they consume nicotine. Now, look, I, I'm not a smoker. I've not been a chewing uh, tobacco kind of guy. Uh, we all know that uh, nicotine is absolutely endemic uh, to those uh, uh, activities. Uh, and uh, you look, if you're looking to evolve, say, from the smoking habit, uh, but recognize that nicotine is, is part of the mix, well, perhaps Lucy Nicotine uh, is a, a helpful way uh, to evolve from uh, those habits. Their latest product is called Slim Nicotine Pouches, uh, which contain pure synthetic nicotine and, and provide the same satisfaction that nicotine users expect without any tobacco at all. Uh, Lucy Slim Pouches use the newest technology for synth- synthesizing, he says, pure nicotine in the lab, none of the tobacco and all of the nicotine satisfaction. They come in three strengths, four, eight, and 12 milligrams, and three exclusive and uh, inviting flavors, spearmint, mango, and cool cider. So don't compromise when you're choosing your nicotine products. Go with the newest tobacco-free options from Lucy Nicotine. And my listeners can go to lucy.co and use the promo code GOODSEATS to get 20% off your order of Lucy Slim Pouches or any other of the Lucy Nicotine products. That's lucy.co and use promo code GOODSEATS at checkout. Now, I got to use this disclaimer. Warning, this product contains non-tobacco nicotine and nicotine is an addictive chemical. Thank you, Lucy Nicotine, for your sponsorship of the show. And now back to our conversation. Can you give me some sense of some of these other players that were on these Angels teams in the late 50s? Um, journeymen, perhaps? Uh, players coming down, players going up? What well, constitute the the uh, the rosters for me and, and, and maybe a couple of names that stand out as, as being a sporting players for him? Well, they were cast-offs. 
Uh, and I, I like to say they went from castoffs to being champs. They all had a little bit of a chip on, on their shoulders, including Bilko. Uh, they all had something to prove. Dave Hillman, who I live in Kingsport, Tennessee. Dave also lives in Kingsport. Uh, Dave, by the way, uh, turns 94 uh, this month of September. Uh, he's the oldest living New York Met. Dave won 21 games for the Angels in 56. He went on to have a pretty decent career with the Cubs, but the Cubs were so bad, it's not necessarily reflected in his record. Gene Mock was the second baseman. And to many of the players, he was like a second manager. Mock, uh, at the end of that season, was taken up to the by the Red Sox. And uh, it was with the Red Sox organization that he got into managing, first in Minneapolis. And then, of course, he moved on uh, to manage with the Phillies and a lot of other clubs in the majors. You had players like Bob Speak. Uh, Speak had been with the Cubs the previous year in 1955. And in the month of May, he had set a record, hitting 11 home runs in that lone month of May. Uh, they, there was uh, players like Elvin Tappy, uh, a catcher. He had uh, been one of the rotating coaches with the Cubs in the 60s. They had um, Dick Drott, who was uh, prior to, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the Woods, the, the pitcher for the Cubs who came along. He held the strikeout record for a single game, Dick Drott, until Woods came along years later. Um, Dick Drott, uh, they thought he was going to be a great pitcher in the majors. He won 15 games as a rookie, but then he came up with arm trouble. Jim Bolger was an outfielder. He had a great year in 56. He bounced around with several other teams in the majors. None of these guys went on to become uh, great uh, stars in the majors, but several of them went on to become managers like Mock, Elvin Tappy, Jim Fanning, who uh, uh, became a manager of the Montreal Expos and also a great scout. He was a catcher on that team. So they had a lot of talent. Uh, I probably have left out a few guys. George Freeze, best known probably for his brother, Gene Freeze. He had been in the majors. Uh, uh, the uh, Mock was at second. Bilko was at first. Gail Wade, the center fielder, had been a starting starting center fielder for the Cubs two straight years, 55, 56. So they had a lot of talent. Their utility man was a guy named Piper Davis. Piper Davis was known. Uh, Willie Mays called him a second father. He actually taught uh, Willie Mays how to hit. And uh, he was Willie Mays' manager with the Birmingham Black Barons in 1948. Piper Davis led the league in pinch hitting in 1956, and he batted 316 overall. So they had some outstanding players. They had a pitcher named Red Adams who won well over 200 games in the minors, had a cup of coffee in the majors, but became a great pitching coach with the Dodgers. Um, under his tutelage, you had guys like Tommy John, Bob Welch, uh, Don Sutton come out. Well, Red Adams always had a sore arm when he pitched. In one game against the Hollywood Stars, he shut him out. After the game, uh, Bobby Bregan went up to the manager of the Stars, went up to Red Adams and said, Red, have you ever had worse stuff than you had today? He said, yes, Bobby, but I didn't need it. <laughs> That's I, – I, I, so many other uh, – spinoff questions I could throw at you around that, around the team, but 56 though, right? Um, what was it about that season that sort of clicked? I mean, they dominated, uh, I mean, they won the league while well, the regular season by 16 games, um, 107 wins. I mean, uh, was there anything in the water, in the air going on? I mean, <laughs> the seasons around those, you know, the first, the season prior and, and after weren't all that bad, but they were certainly not nearly as dominant. I, 
was there anything sort of special that maybe it was Bilko specifically, but what, what was it about 56 that kind of just that, that, that clicked? And, and I got another question after that, which kind of maybe sets the tone for how we, how we off ramp for this story. Okay. I, I think uh, it was a combination of things, Tim, but uh, it was Bilko, of course, was the centerpiece. He was this guy on a pedestal having this phenomenal year that none of the other players could believe uh, uh, he was having. I mean, not they knew he had ability, but it was like it was all coming together for him that year. And these other players were in all of them. And I think he Bilko lifted up the rest of the team. Gene Mock had his greatest year. Jim Bolger had his greatest year. Dave Hillman had his – I mean, some all the guys in this team had the had career years that season, and that's why they won the pennant by 16 games. Um, they, 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 it just all clicked. You know, Bilko remained in L.A. the next year. The Dodgers, by the way, uh, be, had bought the rights to Wrigley Field. They were preparing to move out in 58. And so uh, Bilko hit 56 home runs the following year in 57. But the Angels were uh, not as dynamic a team. I think it was Mock's leadership, uh, Bilko's tremendous power, and then all these other guys just kind of getting on this bandwagon and they're having this great year. And I, I like to refer to them as the last great minor league team because soon after that you had expansion come in. And you, you uh, while you did have here and there uh, some good minor league teams come along in future years, and Pawtucket, they had a team with Jim Rice and Fred Lynn and Spokane. They had teams with some of the future Dodger stars. But uh, I think the uh, number of uh, players you had at that time, the league at that time, it was like a, still a very strong league. And just how this team dominated that league, I think it makes it uh, the last great minor league team. How? So here, here's the question that that maybe kind of can sort of put a, uh, get us into the cul-de-sac of this because I could go on and on <laughs> with all kinds of specific questions. But what 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 was the what was the feeling amongst the players, the management, the fans, the media around this time. I mean, obviously, 56, a great season, great story in Bilko, um, you know, a local celebrity at that, a, 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 a crackling rivalry with the stars around this this period of time. But I, I'm just wondering how ominous or excited or or some combination thereof was the feeling around this not lasting somehow, right? Maybe Major League Baseball truly coming to the West Coast and, as I said before, colonizing. How much did people know or think they knew? How many of the signals were obvious? And or, or did people sort of recognize that this was not going to end, I want to say well, but it was not going to go on as it was, idyllic as it might have been or felt as it might have been, uh, for too much longer. They were looking over their shoulders at the major leagues, the Dodgers in particular. Uh, they knew that uh, the Dodgers or some team from New York, because New York had three teams. You only had 16 major league teams at that time. Three of them were in New York. In fact, for many years, uh, up until Milwaukee moving west, or up until the Boston Braves moving west to Milwaukee, you had, um, uh, of the 16 teams, 11 of them, were in five cities, uh, Boston, New York, uh, Chicago, St. Louis, and Philadelphia. So it, it was not our mas- national pastime in terms of the majors. If you wanted to call a national pastime, you had to include the minors and you had to include the West Coast. So 
the 56 season, while it was a great season, the writers uh, were antsy. They, they wanted to cover Major League Baseball. Uh, the, the writers themselves in L.A., I don't think fully appreciated the, 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 the accomplishments of either Bilko or the team uh, because uh, they had this minor league mentality and they were looking forward to a major league team coming out there. I think Bilko himself knew, uh, as well as several of the players, that it wouldn't be long uh, th- uh, that the uh, major leagues would be invading their territory. Uh, that's just why I think Bilko signed the contract he did for 56 and 57. That was money on the table he could have then rather than count on the major leagues, and he might be riding the bench again in the majors. So, uh, yeah, it was not fully appreciated, not until later. And and it was one of the reasons I wanted to write about the 56 Angels is I never felt that they were given their due. Uh, even in when people compiled lists of greatest minor league teams, the 56 Angels were left off of that list. Well, that's unfortunate because it was a great team. And it was a great team in what was an outstanding league. And I think, as Bilko proved, when he went back to the majors uh, and played for the Angels at Wrigley Field in 61 uh, and hit 20 home runs there, uh, playing part-time, by the way. He didn't even have 300 at-bats that year. Um, he, was, uh, he was capable of what Tommy Lasorda uh, was asked one time, and that was uh, Lasorda was asked, how, how would Steve Bilko do in the majors today? And Lasorda said he would hit between 55 and 60 home runs every year. I, give me a sense of um, – Bilko died in 78, right? At the, sadly, at only 49 years of age. Right. Um, and this your, your book came out in 2014, so I'm guessing you never got a chance to talk to him at all. Oh, I did. No, no. You I interviewed okay. him. I, did, I spent a weekend with him in Nanticoke, Pennsylvania. Uh, Bilko would, was not one to talk much about himself. A lot of the material I got – while I was with him, uh, I asked him to take me around to his favorite pubs in Nanticoke. And he didn't he didn't really drink much while we were going around, but his friends would tell me about him. And, of course, they were in awe of Steve Bilko. But it was through his friends that I got to uh, know quite a bit about him. And then uh, subsequently, you know, I've gotten to know the rest of his family. But when I wrote the book, I did not know the entire family. I relied mostly on interviews with his uh, teammates. And his teammates, of course, uh, nobody ever said a bad thing about Steve Bilko. They were all in awe of uh, his home run ability. And I haven't covered this yet, but his beer drinking ability. He had a tremendous uh, talent. Uh, Ted Bolsfield, who was a pitcher with the 61 Angels, he said he could drink more beer in one sitting than anybody I've ever seen. Unlimited capacity for it. The thing that baffled me, he never went to the bathroom. I'll leave it at that. Well, I was I, I guess the, the other question I was going to ask out of that was, did he ever feel that he uh, didn't uh, get maybe a, 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 a longitudinally better shake, I guess, in terms of his major league career, looking in retrospect as a career, given the fact that he kind of just had his three arguably best years in the minors? Uh, was there any sort of wistfulness around that, or was yes, it, okay. absolutely? Because uh, you're mentioning why he stayed in L.A. Right, financially not a bad bad move, right? It's like I, you know, you're the you're the big fish in the small small smaller ish pond, right? Um, but I got to think in in as you look back on on the career once it's done, he may feel like he got kind of short shrift for those three very successful 
but minor league years. Um, the, the one thing that he uh, begrudged was Bob Sheffing, the manager in 1956, was rewarded for that great year by becoming uh, manager of the Cubs in 1957. Um, Sheffing claimed that he couldn't bring Bilko up. He said he wanted to, but he said he couldn't bring Bilko up because of the contract Bilko had. Well, um, that could have been waived. Uh, the Bilko always wanted to know what he could have done at Wrigley Field in Chicago. The two ballparks, Wrigley in Chicago and L.A., are very similar. It probably hitting a home run in L.A. was a little easier. You didn't have the wind to deal with, and the power alleys were a little shorter. But it, distance wasn't a problem with Bilko. His shots were monstrous shots anyway. Bilko wanted to see what he could have done in Chicago because of what he did in L.A. He was very confident that if given another shot at Chicago, when he played for the Cubs in 54, he didn't see much action. That's why the slogan, Bingo to Banks, a bingo to bongo to b occurred because he was on the bench most of the time. Um, and, of course, 55, he was in L.A., 56, he was in L.A., and 57, he was in L.A. Sheffing was still managing in 58 when Bilko returned to the major leagues with the Reds. The Cubs could have easily had picked uh, Bilko up at that time. Uh, Sheffing had promised, as well as the junior manager, John Holland. John Holland was the junior manager of the Angels in 56, Again, he was promoted to the majors along with Sheffing. Both of them had promised that they would give Bilko a shot if they got up to the majors. Neither did. And Bilko, uh, if there was one grudge he held years later, it was against uh, Sheffing and um, John Holland for not keeping their promise and bringing him up to the Cubs. Well, but but by all accounts, though, he's he's arguably one of the the best uh, uh, for the period of time he was there, one of the best minor leaguers of that era for sure, right? And the he got oh, yeah. posthumously yeah. inducted into the Pacific Coast League uh, Hall of Fame. Um, and look, I think maybe in some respects too, also kind of at least got a um, you know a, a certain level of satisfaction in that he was able to um, essentially end his uh, major league career. Uh, with the namesake franchise that expanded into the major leagues in Los Angeles. Well, uh, first off, he was prior to Koufax and Drysdale and some of the Dodgers that came along in the 60s with those championship teams. He was the most popular baseball player uh, in L.A. prior to that. His popularity was unsurpassed with the Phil Silver show and, and uh, Phil Silver's naming his character, Sergeant Bilko, and years later, there was the movie Sergeant Bilko with Steve Martin. I mean, uh, Bilko's fame is such that, uh, again, the great columnist Jim Murray referred to him as an authentic American sports hero. And I got a letter from uh, a longtime Angels fan who uh, he actually had sent the letter to Mrs. Bilko on Steve Bilko's death uh, at age 49. And in the letter, he calls Steve Bilko the last American sports hero. And I think there's a case to be made for that because he was humble. He was uh, a truly uh, a heroic figure to those of us who saw him play, particularly the kids who saw him play. And uh, and then, of course, you have this legacy that carried on with the, the television series and then the movie, Sergeant Bilko. And then, of course, uh, what he did in terms of, although a lot of people don't know what he did in terms of the Dodgers being able to build uh, Dodger Stadium where they did. 
that wouldn't happen without Steve Bilko. And I think there's a lot of other things in regards to baseball in L.A. It wouldn't have happened without Steve Bilko. And that's why, um, you know, the team, the L.A. Angels in 1956, their nickname was the Bilko Athletic Club. Uh, so I think uh, that was appropriate because it was uh, it was Bilko wasn't the lone star in that team, but he was the greatest star in that team. And I think that was uh, quite a tribute to him, to the league and to minor league baseball. All right, two last questions, I promise. Uh, sure, no one problem. About Bil- one about Bilko and one more generally uh, uh-huh. to round us out. So uh, because of that fame and because of that TV series and, and the name, uh, was there <clears> – <throat> I'm guessing he didn't get any kind of taste of any of that uh, success that that Silver's had with that show. He didn't get any royalties or, or any of that kind of stuff. It was just sort of name recognition, right? Right, yeah. And the same thing, you know, Joe Gargiolo, uh went on to become a famous sportscaster and was on Monday Night Baseball. Joe Gargiolo told a bunch of uh, Steve Bilko stories over the years. Um, uh, and so his fame was spread not only by the television series, but by stories that other announcers or people like Joe Gargiolo, who played with him in St. Louis, stories that they told about him. So it, it was um, – you know, it, it was a uh, Bilko was a guy who is uh, his career didn't stop when he retired. People kept talking about Steve Bilko. And I found uh, when my wife and I were out there in 2016 and his oldest son was throwing out the ceremonial first pitch, we were trying to find out where we were to park. We were going to be part of the uh, Bilko entourage. And as we were going in the parking lot, we were going into the wrong section of the parking lot. The parking lot attendant, uh, I happened to mention that I was author of the Bilko Athletic Club book, and I was there for Steve Bilko's son throwing out the first pitch. This man actually started to cry. He came out of the booth, the parking booth, started to tell me about how he saw Steve Bilko play when he was a younger man, and tears were in his eyes. So that's the kind of effect he had in 2016, about five years ago. And then I, 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 there's this song called Who's On First that the folk singer Ross Altman Uh, wrote and he wrote sometimes he hit like Kirk Gibson and others like Casey at the bat when that bat connected tape measure homers just like the babe he put them in the stratosphere who what's on second I don't know is on third according to Abbott and Costello but who's on first that's easy the LA Angels Steve Bilko Angelino Bambino working class coal miner's son he was our Babe Ruth Mickey Mantle and Ted Williams all rolled into one all right. Here's my here's my last question. It's 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 one that kind of uh, encapsulates kind of some of the things that we uh, like to sort of you know uh, roll around and obsess about uh, on this little show, and that's teams and the names and, and the, the where they're domiciled and and their uh, their lineages and whatnot. Right. It's clear that the um, L.A. Angels, when they came uh, as an expansion team in '62, right? Was '62? '61. '61. I'm sorry. '62 um, was the Mets. I I get, I get them mixed up. The, <laughs> um, um, the uh, obviously it was a, a a baseball cap tip in the general direction of the minor league team that preceded them, um, and obviously they became Calif- the California Angels for the longest time as they went down the. Uh, the I-5 there to Anaheim. But um, but now over the last number of years, right, there's been sort of this, I don't know, um, uh, pullback, if you will, to 
uh, have it both ways with this Los Angeles Angels again, but not quite. And I, I don't know. There's something artificial to me about the the current naming of the franchise uh, in its desire to be the California Angels yet be the Los Angeles Angels at the same time. And I don't, you know, I I know you don't live in Orange County or in Los Angeles, uh, and and you know, uh, but. How do you feel sort of a, sort of the appropriation, if you will, of this name? And it, I, I don't know, it seems to me to be sort of a an egregious sort of, I don't know, money grab to kind of uh, annex, I guess, Los Angeles after years of being sort of Orange County's team using that Angels uh, name. Well, of course, growing up in Los Angeles, uh, I'm quite familiar with the area. And of course, I have gone back many times since. Um Orange County is not L.A. It's different. It's a much more affluent area. It's one of the most affluent areas in the L.A. area. When the Angels were established, the first year they played in Wrigley Field, then they moved into Dodger Stadium. They didn't call it Dodger Stadium. They called it Chavez Ravine. But they remained in L.A. And those were the years of Bo Belinsky, Dean Chance. Um, Bilko was still with them in 62 uh, when they had an outstanding year. Uh, the Angels... Um, were initially rooted in L.A., and I think fans identified with them because of the history of the L.A. Angels minor league team. Uh, but when they moved to Orange County, it changed. Now, yes, they had some great players come through there. Gene Mock managed over there. Nolan Ryan came through, Reggie Jackson. But, I, I, again, I, I don't think that um, the real L.A. Angels fans, the, 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 the traditional ones, never made the transition to the Angels when they moved to Orange County. Uh, it, it just, it was a good ballpark, nothing wrong with the ballpark, but it's still not Los Angeles. So as far as I'm concerned, go ahead and call them California Angels. The real LA Angels to me were the teams that were playing in LA, Wrigley Field and Chavez Ravine the first several years. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, just, but you look at the the history of this franchise and, the, and its name, right? The, California Angels are becoming the Anaheim Angels. Then this 10-year monstrosity known as the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. And then just fully doing the deed and becoming the quote-unquote Los Angeles Angels. And 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 I guess sort of disregarding, if you will, the, the actual geography uh, involved. I, but I guess, so I, I, I get it, right? I mean, it's big business, right? And you said it before early in our conversation, you know, we— when you grow up and and you you latch onto a team or a sport, you know, as your you know in your your youth, your impressionable youth, you're less cynical, right? And you, but it's hard not to be cynical when you sort of see that sort of thing. And I think especially given your fandom of the original version of this team, and I here's the last sort of wind up right question: when when the what are they called now? The Los Angeles Angels, or perhaps when they were when, uh, the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, maybe, which I could sort of say is at least more accurate. Um, <laughs> how do you feel about when they do a throwback, right? A and calling back that original Angels franchise in the PCL, um, I could see where you you sort of maybe get some warm and fuzzies from that, right? But, but also, it's a frankly, it's a bit of a charade because... You're kind of, you know, stepping around or on the, the memory of this original, pure, wonderful Pacific Coast League version of a team. Well, I'm a I traditionalist, uh, Tim, and anytime MLB teams celebrate uh, tr uh, 
recognize that tradition. I'm not going to criticize it. Um, I think it was great that MLB played the Field of Dreams game there. Uh, I think it's great they're going to continue doing that, at least for a while. In fact, I'd like to see MLB play um, more games in venues that have great traditions, such as Rickwood Field in Birmingham, Alabama, or Grayson Stadium in Savannah. Both ballparks have been around a long time. Or some minor league venues that, uh, again, might uh, reacquaint fans uh, younger fans with a, t- a great tradition of baseball. So if, uh, and I'll say this, when the Steve Bilko was inducted into the Shrine of the Eternals in 2016, the Angels were very gracious about allowing Steve Bilko's, the Bilko family, uh, into the ballpark, treating them like celebrities, having putting together a nice little video recognizing Steve Bilko's career and his oldest st- son, Steve Bilko Jr., throwing out the first pitch, while the grandson, who um, uh, Steve Bilko never, well, he had just been born, uh, he named Steve Bilko was there to see it. So these generations of Bilkos got to enjoy this. And so, uh, I'm not going to be critical of the angels or anything they do so long as they're recognizing their roots and their roots are at Wrigley field in LA and Steve Bilko in 1961. Well, there you go. We uh, we dig into into that kind of uh, lore. I, I'm I'm fascinated and frustrated uh, in combination thereof around teams and leagues and and where their histories are domiciled, right? And um, you know, I think it's important. This stuff is important. Without the uh, the doings of the original version, right? You arguably wouldn't have the name of the team and and the confused history sometimes, or the appropriation, I guess, or misappropriation. Of that history, but you know, I guess at the end of the day, if it if it if it means having memories, to your point, like your uh, your uh, Anaheim Stadium parking lot uh, incident, uh, <laughs> you know, that's probably not a bad thing. And and the the memory of not only the team but also guys like Steve Bilko um, will continue. And and I guess at the end of the day, that's not a bad thing. No, and, and let me share this with you. Uh, I got a letter from. Jack Hanna, a former ball player, never made it to the majors. He was the brother of Joe Hanna, who was on that 56 Angels team. Joe also didn't make it to the majors. But um, they formed a singing group, Sons of the San Joaquin. And I came to know Joe and Jack and their son, Lon, quite well. Um, but at one point, Jack wrote me a letter, and he wrote said this, What would life be if it weren't for the remembrances? We have the future of which we know nothing. We have the present, which is so close and moving so swiftly by that we can't make much of it. But the past is as clear as our memories will allow. It is the memories of the past that convince me how important what I am doing is in the present. And that letter with that passage was uh, came at a critical time when I was writing the book. And not because it was my first book, not quite sure I had the ability to... Uh, finish what I had started years earlier. But I think it really captures what we're talking about, Tim, and that is our memories of the past are very important. And uh, our memories of the ballplayers we first saw, the ballparks we we first saw these players in, uh, what they accomplished, what what uh, they meant to us at that time. These are all very important, particularly in these day, this day and age where so much around us is swirling by and it's hard to understand. So um, I hope this book, The Bilko Athletic Club, uh, you know, I was initially inspired by The Boys of Summer by Roger Kahn. 
And what I wanted to do with um, the Bilko Athletic Club was somewhat kin to the Boys of Summer. I wish I had written it or finished it sooner. Uh, somebody said that to me once, Galen, this is a great book, but you should have written it 20 years earlier. Well, I wish I could have, but it would have been a different book, and there's a time for everything, and I like to think that when I finally did write this book, that the people who read it will appreciate it for what it was, and people who maybe weren't around at that time get a sense for what it was at that time. All right. Fascinating stuff. And uh, you Los Angeles baseball fans, hopefully you enjoyed that uh, uh, as I did. Again, um, the book uh, is a treat. It really is. Uh, and you can tell uh, it's written with love, but not only not only love, but uh, a tremendous uh, research and accuracy. And it's a fun read. It's again called The Bilko Athletic Club, the story of the 1956 Los Angeles Angels. Uh, Galen White, uh, our uh, interviewee subject this week is, of course, the author. It is published by Roman and Littlefield. Uh, it is available, of course, wherever good books are found. And uh, we highly suggest that uh, you uh, go through the link on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode number 231 with Galen White, and you will find a convenient link to the book, as well as a whole bunch of other Galen White baseball publications. Uh, and uh, you'll be giving us a couple of shekels of love uh, for referring to Amazon, of course, probably the quickest place on the planet to ensure your hard copy, your soft cover copy, your Kindle version, whatever version, uh, whatever way you want to ingest this book, uh, highly, highly recommended. You can follow Galen White uh, on his website at uh, GalenWhiteBaseball.com. Galen is spelled G-A-Y-L-O-N. Galen White Baseball all one word, dot com. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Galen White, G-A-Y-L-O-N, White, W-H-I-T-E, at Galen White. While you're on social media, why don't you follow us, for God's sakes? How about that? Yeah, on Twitter, we're at Good Seats Still. Uh, on Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. And uh, on Facebook, we'll find us on uh, Good Seats Still Available, somewhere on that crazy platform known as Facebook. Uh, our website, as I mentioned, again, goodseatsstillavailable.com. All of our episodes are available for you to search and find and share and stream and do whatever you want. Uh, if you don't already subscribe or follow our feeds on your podcasting uh, catcher of choice, um, that's, of course, the most efficient way because we'll put in you know, a couple of special episodes here and there, a, a passing of someone or a special episode commemorating something. Uh, so you don't want to miss out on that. But all of our original episodes, every one that we put out, uh, will be found on the website. So for whatever reason, if you miss something, uh, you'll know you'll have a backstop in that on the site. Uh, of course, uh, you can send us email. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And of course, you can also subscribe to our email weekly newsletter. Uh, just uh, search around on the website. I forget exactly where it is off the top of my head, but it's there somewhere. All you got to do is give us your name and your email address and boom. You are on the list to know a little bit ahead of the hoi polloi of what's going to be on uh, this uh, coming week's episode. Uh, who knows what next week is in store, but uh, I look forward to bringing it to you. Uh, and once again, we want to thank and tip our um, uh, our Los Angeles Angels uh, 1956 version of Pacific Coast League cap uh, in the general direction of our uh, great pal, Jerry Payne, Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. 
Thank you so much for putting our pieces together once again this week. And uh, thank you, great listener, uh, for listening as long as you have. Uh, and uh, we uh, welcome you to the proceedings, hopefully again next week. Until then, please stay safe. And uh, we'll see you soon, very soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>